it's a public service because people that are choosing to run for office, especially in, let's say, the state legislature or your local city government or the school board, if we were going to go there, they're not doing it to make bank. It might be helpful if they have a law firm or a business. You know, they get a little recognition. But believe me, that is hard work. It is long work. And it's quite frankly inconvenient work, especially with the part-time legislature, just to be gone for three to four months out of the year. You have to have a pretty sweet, flexible gig in order to do that. So I think part of it is reframing it and understanding we're talking about the same animal here, if you will, but it's public service. You're listening to Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson, professor of political science at University of Indianapolis. She's talking about how to view politics in 2021 from a variety of different angles and perspectives on this episode of Michael Loves Indy. Hi, friends. Welcome back to Michael Loves Indy. I'm excited to present this episode, a conversation with Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. She's a professor of political science at University of Indianapolis. And the conversation is really about looking at politics in 2021 from different angles and through different lenses. And let me give you some background. I, I, I wanted to title this episode, Maybe Politics in 2021 Isn't So Terrible, or something like that. You know, national politics has really dominated certainly our media and for most of us, speaking for myself, our family table conversations for at least the last five years. Really, it's dominated by national politics, which tends to overlook state and local issues which have a lot of impact on our lives. And it's also tempting to say politics has never been worse. We've never been more polarized as a country. And I know that's partly true. And there have been entire books written about that topic. However, Statements like that, at least to the extent that I make them, I realized after this conversation with Dr. Wilson are kind of blanket statements, and it's probably healthy to be looking at our system in different ways. And and, um, I'll I'll tell you about our guest, Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. Again, she's a professor at University of Indianapolis. She is someone that you'll see quoted more and more and more in the media here in Indianapolis. She's got a real gift for studying our political systems and engaging the public in a way that people can understand, which doesn't talk down to people, and I think that's a real gift. Her specific areas of expertise, she's done a lot of research on gender and racial gaps among candidates for office nationwide. She studies state legislatures and state regulation. She studies campaign finance reform. We get into that a little bit in this conversation. And again, just challenging us to look at our political system in different ways. It's not all bad. There are a lot of opportunities, things on the horizon that we need to consider. Um, If we want to have a broad, maybe more intellectually honest view of these uh, systems. And she's also just a very engaging speaker, as you can hear from the conversation. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. get bombarded the average you know um person gets bombarded with so many of these messages with kind of national politics dominating and a lot of the a lot of the a lot of your work that i've read at least in the public domain and then your quotes it seems like would paint a picture that it's like it it, it's almost like well actually if you scratch beneath the surface 
you know, exactly. you see some other stories there. So is that, is that an accurate? Um, it is. Okay. No, it, it absolutely is. And I, I think people get enamored with nat- national politics because there's a universality, right? It impacts us all. Yep. Um, but, but also there's a certain dynamic to it that's not really reflective at state and local where in fact it generally is more conciliatory it is it, it's a lot more productive in various ways and that's one of my life's missions is to get people to recognize that and they don't have to to love it but at least to have an understanding and appreciation for the fact that there's there are good politicians out there there's good politics out there there are great policies out there and they're not all happening through congress and the presidency right they're happening in our own backyard and they're going to impact each one of us in our own neighborhoods yeah so where do you think where do you think the the seeds were planted in terms of you you know pursuing this as your life's work you grew up in alabama is that correct so i moved around a lot i okay. most recently am from alabama Okay. And, and if you were looking at, if we were looking at kind of, um, you know, those early formative experiences growing <laughs> up, are there, are there things like your parents or your family or your town that yes. might, that might have, you know, pointed you in this direction? You know, I love that question because I, I was thinking about political socialization, right? What leads people to think and feel and act the way that they do. And I will say as a political science professor and as someone who gets the opportunity to do media analysis a lot, it's important for me to be nonpartisan. And I can say my parents are ideologically divided. Uh, they, they find some common ground on policies, but, but they, they are different in terms of politics. And so I joke a lot of times, I think, well, what happens if you cross a conservative and a liberal, you get me little nonpartisan, independent, moderate me, but my parents always talked about politics growing up. And, um, even a lot of times when they didn't agree on things, that's probably when I heard it the most, but I was exposed to the different angles and the perspectives. And of course my parents are, uh, happily married 45 plus years. <laughs> so save some political differences. They modeled, I think a really healthy, energized level of discourse that allowed me to see there was no right or wrong or right and left, but there was no right and wrong. And, um, I also kind of modeled this idea, this expectation of civic engagement and civic involvement. And so I, I think back on that all the time as a kid. We participated in protests in March, and I would go to a campaign rally for one candidate, and my parents would take me to a fundraising effort for another candidate. Um, but I was, I was always exposed to politics, and I really do credit my parents with that. I credit my education with that. I think politics is important for everyone, and I recognize not everyone gets that background. Not everyone has that kind of experience um, in their formative years, but I'm grateful that I've had it. And I, I do believe that's been, that's been helpful for me. It's been inspiring for me. And it certainly led me to do what I enjoy doing the most, which is talking about politics. And were there, was it, you're, you're also, at least when I, when I see you quoted, you're also, um, you come off as uh, not cynical at all. Um, <laughs> now, not, not, you know, not overly optimistic, but not cynical. And, and, is that, would you trace that to your parents as well? Or were there, were there, you know, were there other experiences growing up where you, you know, got a, a, a very positive view of, of, of civic uh, participation in addition to what you just mentioned, your, the, the exposure that your parents um, provided? Michael, in my heart and spirit, I think I'm a cheerleader. And I, I think about this. I, I believe in the power of positivity and not in a goofy, like Pollyanna sort of way, but I, my parents are free. They're doers, right? They're optimistic. But I, I also think I've 
seen the cynics. It's very easy to be a cynic in politics. It's it's probably harder in a lot of times, in a lot of cases, to be positive. But um, I, the cynic doesn't get things done. The cynic has to wallow, and, and the cynic gets depressed. and And there are certainly things to be really honest about. There are there are very hard things. There are very real challenges that I don't want to gloss over and say everything's great. But to me, I think it's important in that cheerleader role is to see the optimistic side, to see the opportunity to see the possibility. And I, I also think, you know, as an educator, as a teacher, that's where I see my my role coming in as a professor. I'll have students all the time that tell me, you know, I, I'm kind of interested in politics, but I don't really know where to start. I don't want to, I don't want to chastise them. I don't want to say, well, what do you mean you haven't been paying attention for the last 18 years? How could you possibly, you know, whatever, yeah, uh, do that. But it, political shaming is a real thing. And I think that is totally counterproductive. It's counterproductive to who I am, but I think that should be counterproductive to everything in I terms agree. of civic engagement because yeah, you if you give people a hard time for not participating, that doesn't make them want to participate more. They just feel bad. And now you just disengage them and, and then they in turn become cynics. So you know I I think on those kind of things, I, I think on those experiences and um, like I said, as a professor, I want to be the person that says you can do it. It's okay if you, you're just coming interested to in politics now. It doesn't matter. Um, being able to show the silver lining, if you will, yeah. and without you know, there's there's still heavy issues, but I think there's an opportunity and a possibility for everyone. And I I believe that to the core of my soul and being. I really yeah. do. Just I, again, I just have a few more questions on background before we get into the the present yeah. day stuff that I've been dying to ask. Um, you know, what then, what propelled you then, um, kind of through your education to academia, because this, so, you know, as, as people look at your work today, obviously you're an academic, you, you, you do a lot of writing and research, but there's something about your, um, work that's very much grounded in, you know, serving the practitioners, you know, and being, and it's very much, um, at least what I've, what I've read of it, it's very much applied, you know, and, 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 and in, in the real world. And is that, is, is, is that something, is that a direction you kind of always knew, um, you wanted to go? Um, and, and how did, how did that kind of propel you through your, um, your academic career? It's certainly been intentional, uh, in part because, as you go through your training uh, to, to become an academic, right? You get a bachelor's, you get a master's, you get a doctorate. You, you read all of these journal articles, which are, are fascinating and in all of these academic journals, but they're created by academics. They're only read by academics. They're only used by academics. And, and quite frankly, that's an archaic train of thought. If we're just creating research and we're uh, using data only amongst ourselves, there, there's no application to it. And it, something that I, I find kind of frustrating, quite frankly, is if we're just informing ourselves, what is the point? And where is, where's the value in what we do? And I, I think for me, and when I think of political science, specifically as a discipline, if I think of academia as a whole, our value is contributing to the production and awareness of knowledge in our communities. And so for me, it, being able to produce research and to share that and to share it at a, at a level that makes sense. I don't need to talk in these terms that are maybe disciplinary standards, but people should not have to have a PhD to understand what I'm saying. If they do, then I'm quite frankly doing it wrong. This should be easily understood, easily accessible, easily available, and most importantly, easily usable for the average person. 
And I'll say this wasn't exactly what you're asking, but this is part of why I really enjoy getting any opportunity to speak through the media because it's an opportunity to reach a broader audience. Yeah. And I get the opportunity to talk in college classrooms all the time, but not everyone got to be in a college classroom. You know, not everyone's in a college classroom now and politics changes, dynamics change. Um, having the ability to share just what we know in terms of data, what we know in terms of research and making it easily accessible and understandable to the public, I feel is a, it's an incredible opportunity. It's a real privilege, but I also think it's an obligation we have as academics in serving our larger communities. So I know, you know, when you think about, and again, being such a lay person, but, but it, you know, um, academics who have, become really well-known, you know, nationally. I mean, you know, Sabato's Crystal Ball, you know, which yes, is University yeah. of Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? And, mm-hmm. um, and so, and yet, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the academics who kind of cross over in the mainstream are doing national politics. And, um, and yet, you know, I have found, I, I, I thought when I was a, um, an undergrad at Northwestern University and I interned on Capitol Hill and I remember coming back saying that wasn't what I was hoping for. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a great experience for some people. And I, not until I was in my mid to late twenties, was I really drawn more to local and state politics and a lot of your work, I mean, and you have done national work, so that's not to say, but, but a lot of the work that I've been uh, drawn to has really been more about uh, your recent work on state legislatures, you know, campaign finance reform and things like that. Were there, were there, were there certain experiences that drew you more to say, you know, the work of state legislatures when I know a lot of your, a lot of, it seems like a lot of your counterparts in academia (laughs) will focus on like a, a sub, sub, subset of national politics. That's not to say it's not incredibly important, but uh, does that, does that make sense? Oh, it's, it absolutely does. And I'll tell you, there is, there was such a niche that wasn't filled in terms of state politics. I think that's probably why I was first drawn to it. If we're, if we're really looking back because the national politics is sophisticated. People get really enthralled. Like you said, I have so many students that say, I want to work on Capitol Hill. I want to work with members in Congress. I want to work on K Street. People don't think about, I want to work downtown in the state capitol. It, quite in the same way. It doesn't have the same sophistication and flair. And what's unfortunate about that is that we're missing a really important piece of the political puzzle. And in fact, if you look in terms of the balance of federalism, I understand the appeal of studying the federal government, which is, let me emphasize, very important. But the federal government only does so much. There's the universality of it. It impacts us all. There's a lot of power, those 10th Amendment rights, you go back to your U.S. Constitution, a lot of power that is given to the states. And this is where I really geek out as a a data social scientist, but, but we can compare. We can look at 50 states and say, hmm, this state has this particular policy, and we're very similar to that state. The policy seems to be very successful. Perhaps we want to adopt or adapt that policy for us. And likewise, you know, some state policies are total flops and failures. Well, they're just out their money. They're just out their state time, right? It's not impacting us on a national level. So there's this opportunity for policy innovation. There's opportunity for comparison across states. And even just looking specifically for us here in Indiana, there's so much that goes on in our General Assembly. Yes, it's part-time, you know, three to four months out of the year, got 150 folks there, but but there's a lot of important things. There are a lot of important policies and issues that get decided, you know, depending where you live, mere minutes or 
at most a few hours away from your residence. And I think it's important for people to understand that and to communicate with them. And one other thing I would say to that is when people don't follow state politics and innately, I don't think it's their fault because we don't do much in terms of educating people on state politics. I, I never learned what an auditor was in high school. I could guess and make inferences. I never yeah. learned what a secretary of state was until I was in college. And it was surprising. It was different at a state level than it was at the federal level. Just little things like that, whereas we talk about Congress and the presidency and the Supreme Court, you know, beginning in elementary school children, we don't acclimate them to the same way in terms of state government. And yet it's infinitely, arguably, I will say this, I'm going to argue, more important in terms of our daily lives and our interactions with government. Um, despite the fact that oftentimes it's not the first thing we think of when we think of government and politics that are really important to us. I know the, um, the old saying in, uh, you know, back to civics classes, you know, this, the state governments, what educate, medicate, incarcerate. And, and, and then, you know, which, which, you know, is more of an old saying. And then, but I mean, I, you know, I add to that, you know, the road funding. Now I know a lot of that is, is, is federal road funding, but it flows through the States. The States have a a ton of latitude in terms of transit and things like that. And, you know, you start to, you start to overlay those functions and it's like, wow, I mean, you know, literally billions of dollars, the types of things that would impact, you know, your, you know, your decisions on kind of where you, where you live and and how you live. And, um, and and the um, another thing I know that that um, has been a part of your research, you know, I think I think pretty much throughout your career has been um, uh, the the politics of gender, but particularly um, you know uh, women's participation in, in the political system. And I know that in yes. 2021 we're nowhere near gender equality and things like that, and yet you know, you've been studying kind of the progression of women in politics now for, for several years. And, um, again, before, before we get into these, these present day questions, I want to ask you, are there, are there things you would want, you know, the listener or someone meeting you for the first time, uh, to know that, that kind of, you know, things that, that would, you know, stand out in particular from your work on, uh, women in politics? Overwhelmingly, <laughs> we're underrepresented, and that's women at the federal, state, and local level. Doesn't matter what state, doesn't matter what municipality, and that's true across the branches in terms of the executive, legis- legislative, and judicial. I, I think what fascinates me about the research in terms of women in politics is oftentimes people aren't cognizant of the underrepresentation. Women are roughly fifty-one percent of the population in any given area, and, and yet almost exclusively, and I'd be happy to go into a few exceptions, but just understand generally, almost exclusively women are underrepresented in all of the elected and appointed public offices, these public spaces. And people don't always think about it in that way, but I I think they also don't understand the really simple answer to the why. You say, well, why is this? This is 2021, you know, we treat women and men equally, presumably. But the dirty answer Real quick, real simple, very dirty is that women don't run. They don't run for office at the same rates as men. And so a lot of the research and a lot of the work that I've, I've spent a lot of time on is trying to understand why. Identifying what the difference is in that decision-making process. I'm really passionate about campaign finance because I, I think it's a, it could be a great equalizer in some ways. And you know, TV ad is going to cost one person the same as it's going to cost another, but it's not equal in terms of how people fundraise and how much money they contribute and, and various other um, components there. So 
understanding those differences, I think, in terms of gender politics is really important. And I will say, since I started this line of research, really as a graduate student, I was always kind of fascinated by the gender differences. And I should also emphasize, if we start talking about underrepresentation, it is even worse in terms of race and ethnicity. White women are overwhelmingly better represented, even though they're still underrepresented. We talk about uh, women of color. It, it gets worse and worse in terms of underrepresentation, what they look like in terms of being in elected office versus the population. Yeah. But when I started this, the numbers were dismally low. I will say they improve each election cycle. Generally, they have improved. But also, if we look at the historical data, it shows us that progress isn't inevitable. I I think sometimes we make that assumption. We rest on our laurels. We think, well, there's more women are in office. We have a vice president who's a woman of color. We're we're good. We're past that. We're we're post whatever that issue might be. And you can look at the data and the numbers. Most of the data, I would recommend if folks are interested, the Center for American Women in Politics, CAWP, which is run out of Rutgers, most of the data going back to 1971, there are women involved before then, but that's really where we started measuring it, will show you there are increases, there are climbs, and then it kind of tails off for a little bit. And then there's another moment where people get really excited and energized. You see more female candidates. Thus, because when women run, they win, you see more women elected into office. And then it will flatten again. So I think I would just add that too. The progress certainly isn't inevitable. It's not just going to happen because it's been happening. But understanding that we do need women to run. And quite frankly, we need all walks of life, people coming from all different backgrounds to be involved. um, Because there's a lot of value in experience that just, quite frankly, isn't recognized in government. It's not represented there. Um, and, you, and the reality is, doesn't matter if it's not represented, it's the policies are going to impact us all. So we yeah. should all be invested in that kind of representation. And, you know, the, the inevitable, if you could wave a magic wand question, um, <laughs> I'm sure you get this sometimes, but are there, are there policy changes that you've been, that you have keyed in on that, you know, if implemented would encourage more women and women of color to run for office? Generally, I don't know that there are policy questions as much as cultural changes. And I say that because I, I shy away a little bit in terms of uh, legal or political change because it would almost mandate something that's not naturally already happening. I want women to be empowered. I want women to be confident. I want women to see themselves in these positions of public office. But requiring, let's say, the extremes, right, requiring a quota that, that doesn't necessarily give us the kind of representation we want. And some other countries do that, and that works for them. It's a reflection of their values and cultures. But I don't think that's a good fit for us. I, there aren't any foolproof policies that, you know, that we can wave the magic wand and instantly see. But I do think if we have certainly awareness of the differences in terms of representation and gender, and we look at different ways to encourage women to run. And there's a lot of literature and research out there that talks about that, you know, asking women, they need to be asked more than men. For example, have you ever thought about running for public office? Um, They oftentimes overestimate how much it's going to cost versus men who will underestimate it. So you want to be realistic about that. What that be? They compare themselves to the ideal candidate versus men who tend to compare themselves to an actual candidate. And of course, if you're comparing yourself to an ideal, it's going to be a lot harder to yeah. attain. Changing those kind of things. Right? Um, yeah. They, those, I think those are, those are cultural shifts and certainly they progress over generations. I think there's expectations of my mother and my grandmother's generations versus mine and my daughters are different. 
but I don't see them being policy shifts in the same way as they really are cultural and social. Interesting. Now, um, so, okay. So one of the questions that I've been dying to ask you about present, present time is if you're just a, you know, just a casual, you know, um, observer of the news, um, I think you're, it's very likely that you're bombarded by messages of how polarized we are as an electorate. Um, the, 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 and if you, and if you drill down into the polar, you know, how polarized we are as an electorate. And I know that previous conversation, we talked briefly about, there's been a lot, a lot of the research written about the, the stacking of the ideologies, you know, you used to have within the Democrat party, yeah. it used to be more diverse within the Republican party, you know, a couple generations ago, it used to be more diverse. There's actually less diversity within the parties. And so it leads you to believe that the, that the electorate's more polarized and then, um, low, low voter participation rates, although those have, you know, gone, there's been some fluctuation, I realize in, in general elections, um, which, which wouldn't necessarily say it's just a, a, a straight, you know, downhill line in terms of vo- voter participation. And yet your research, correct me if I'm wrong, um, you know, um, would, you know, it looks at factors and it would indicate, I think, to the casual reader, hey, it's not, it's not necessarily worse, you know, a bit, you know, yeah, nationally we're polarized, but, but there are, there are opportunities maybe under the surface that go underreported in the mainstream media. Is that, is that an accurate depiction? And, or, and if not, you know, how would you describe it? <laughs> no, it absolutely is. That's, that's exactly accurate. And I, I think when we look at the polarization, it is a false creation because we are relying on the economy. Right. In terms of if we give people the option of a yes or no, it has to be polarized by virtue of the fact that you only gave people two options. That spread is going to look by photo. There's only two options there. But the reality is very few people are a simple yes or a simple no. They're a yes under these circumstances. A no when we're considering these specifics. It, and there's a lot of research out there. I would also highlight Morris Fiorina. that does a lot of research in terms of polarization and what he calls kind of this fraud, this, this perception of polarization. And that's there's an important key point. I'll come back to you there. But things like abortion, which is a classic American wedge issue. If you ask people just very simply in public opinion polling, do you agree with abortion or do you, do you support this policy or do you not? you will get very close answers in terms of percentages that either say yes or no. And we're going to look really polarized. But if you go into the next layer and you give them options, you create, you know, essentially a Likert scale, that seven point scale where people can say, well, I strongly agree with it, or I agree with it under circumstances, or I don't agree with it under these circumstances, or I strongly disagree. You're going to see a lot more variety. And that's not because people change their minds. That's because we changed the way we measured what was in their minds. So to me, with that polarization, it's we're oversimplifying things in that way if we say, oh, we're really polarized more than ever before. Is the rhetoric polarized? Yes, in part because a lot of times you hear one quote unquote side versus the other, and you will probably hear the extremes more because that is quite frankly what gets more attention. Does it seem like Congress is polarized? Yes, because we have two primary parties and they will oftentimes seem at odds, but that doesn't mean compromise isn't possible. And that doesn't mean they're actually polarized in terms of stances. It, it does mean we have a two party system that's pretty entrenched in terms of American government. Yeah. And then it, that's, yeah, that, that's interesting. And then, and then, you know, 
admittedly, a lot of the talk about polarization is aimed at Congress and at the national parties. And yet, you know, your, your research, I think, um, you know, encourages people to look at uh, layers, you know, and so not, yeah. um, again, I'm, uh, tell me if I get this right, but not as this monolithic, you know, na- you know, federal system, but look at the, at, at layers, you know, at the state and local. So if it looking at, looking at state and local politics through that same lens of, oh, the electorate's really polarized, um, what, you know, what are, what is your, what does your research tell you and what, what do you find, how do, you know, when you're, when you're talking to, to local media about, um, you know, local and state politics, what are the conversations you find yourself having? Well, a great example is this legislative session. Uh, looking at a lot of times this assumption that, oh, if you have unified government or if you have, let's say, super majorities. And in Indiana, we have both. A Republican controls the House, the Senate, right, in terms of super majorities for the party and in terms of the governorship. And yet we saw Governor Holcomb vetoed important legislation this session, and that veto was overridden in, in terms of becoming a law through the state legislature. And it's controlled by Republicans. These are all Republicans. But of course, there's going to be diversity within that political party. The thing I've really enjoyed in terms of researching this and understanding it (laughs) is that if you want to think of things in shades of blue and red, and we'll just go with that, right? Blue for Democrats, red for Republicans, they are shades. There are people that are going to be very conservative within the Republican Party, and there are people who are going to be moderately conservative. And, and it, it truly is an umbrella coalition. It's the beauty but the complexity of the party system that plays out at the state level. So just because you belong to the same party as the governor, it doesn't mean you agree with all the issues. It doesn't yeah. mean you're going to be on the same on the same side in terms of policy. And I, I think it's too easy for us to oversimplify it. We think of it, you know, I'm coming from Alabama here, so I think of it like a football game and a football team. You assume that everybody on that team agrees with what the play is going to be. But sometimes they're going to say, no, I think it should be passing or no, I, you know, I think it should be running, whatever it might be. You're going to have some divergence there. And that's it, truly, that's the best part about American government in general, but also with state government, there's a lot more recognition of it. I, I think quite frankly, because we do have a part-time legislature. So they, they look at things differently. These are people that have careers and professional interests and experiences that aren't just government related. They're bringing it to their position. So in a lot of different ways, I, I do think it highlights that. And, you know, just emphasizing it, that's a, a large part of why state government and local government, again, are really important and deserve the kind of respect and attention that oftentimes I just fear they don't quite get. I think some of it is, um, and not to, not to blame the media. Cause I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not a person that buys into kind of the, well, the, the media is always liberal. Cause I, 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 frankly, I don't believe that, but I do, no, I, I do either. think it's, it's interesting. Like, so a lot of the, for, for like, you know, some, some of my West coast relatives and, and others maybe listening, tuning in, um, the, the in the Indiana General Assembly session this year, there was a lot of um, a, a big deal made of legislate piece of legislation which um, didn't really go anywhere, which would have taken the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department and made it a state agency because some lawmakers yeah. didn't think the you know the the mayor of Indianapolis was you know they didn't think it was doing an effective job, et cetera. And 
And then um, there also was an outburst a month now a month ago of um, you know members of the the state house yelling at each other on the floor of the house and I haven't watched all the videos but yeah. there's certainly some things that were said that were raci- at best at best racially insensitive so that that'll happen and yet Laura um, a couple of weeks ago there's bipartisan support for um, very meaningful statewide legislation that puts limits on uh, police use of force policies. That was it's it's not it's not fixing the problem, but it definitely a huge step in the right direction with strong bipartisan support. Okay, so what it puts puts uh, it's a state law put puts um, uh, limits in, uh, around uh, police use of force policies, banning chokeholds and things of that nature, and it doesn't get re- really get reported. You know, uh, it's just it's almost like so it's almost like I feel like there's this kind of national narrative that the media uses. And then I find it frustrating when there are these pragmatic policies that get passed. And I feel like it's maybe not not really picked up. And I maybe I mean, maybe it's maybe it's responsibilities of organizations like the one I work for, the chamber, to really do do a better job of getting it out there. But is this I don't know, is this part of a bigger a bigger trend? It's almost like when they do something good, we don't know how to talk about it, you know? Exactly. Our expectation is that they would do something good. And I think, unfortunately, that might be an unfair expectation. These are people, they are prone to error, disagreement, having asymmetry of information and uncertainty of the future forecasting. And yet, they're empowered with both the right and responsibility to make policy decisions on behalf of us all. I personally give a lot of grace. There's certainly a lot of room for improvement. Many of the things you talked about, there's the good, there's the bad and the ugly, but I do think, and and I'm involved with the media. So I would certainly include myself in that group for any, uh, any challenges that we might pose. The focus on the bad and the ugly is I think because we, we don't expect that because we want things to improve and it's unfortunate, but I do I suspect people will click on those articles that say have some awful, horrible headline because they're enthralled and they're, they almost have this, this interest in being upset or, or wanting to learn more versus if there was something positive is at the end of the day, the media is consumer driven. If, if we don't click on the articles, if we don't turn on that channel, if we don't purchase that newspaper, it ceased to exist. And I'm not blaming us as the consumers and nor am I I'm blaming the media, but I think there's that perpetuation in terms of expectations of things should be good. Well, things should yeah. happen. We, we don't acknowledge them and recognize them the same way, but to your point, organizations certainly have a role in terms of promotion. And I, I think the legislatures do too. I think public officials, when they get a meeting with the media and, you know, it might be over X, Y, Z, but they also should reach out to the media, perhaps emphasize, promote, look, we have this great thing going on. Your readers are going to want to know about this. And it might be a harder sell initially. And of course, if people don't click or tune in or read or purchase it, it might ultimately be too hard of a sell, but there is that, that sense of promotion and recognition. I would suspect, especially in these times, the phrase I hate to say, but I often say it anyway. But in these times, people are hungry for positivity, and they're they're hungry for a sense that things are going to improve and be better. And any one of those stories that can warm your heart and make you feel good, and bipartisan legislation should do exactly that. Those are the things that I personally would want to read and watch and hear. And I do think there's an audience out there, but there is that question of promotion and and whose responsibility it is to do that. And maybe in some ways, it's all of ours. Yeah, one. That's really interesting. So one, and one thing that makes me think of is 
um, in um, it's there are more points of it seems like there are more points of access and more points of entry for the average person. And I'm thinking especially of young people who and not just for running for office. And I know I, I know that I'm um, caveat. If you want to run for Congress, it takes more money right now than ever, which I, I don't <laughs> think is great. Um, and also caveat your earlier comment that we can't just assume that it's this inevitability that more women and more, you know, women of color are going to get, are going to automatically run, you know, as, as society progresses, we could, we could backslide. And I, I totally get that. And then I'm going to say one more caveat and that is, you know, people COVID has really, I think made us all think differently about, and with, with more, uh, sensitivity and grace toward essential workers, um, people struggling to make ends meet. And, and so people, people working two jobs are still going to have a hard time, you know, t- finding the time and energy to run for office. I get all that, you know, now, yeah. however, given all those constraints, social media, um, the, the, on average, the lower, um, the, the, the political parties on average, local political parties in most places have gotten weaker. So you don't have the barriers or the hurdles to run, yeah. you know? And I feel like I'm, I find myself constantly telling, especially young people, it's like, Hey, I don't think you, I don't think you understand how, how accessible your city county counselors are or your state house rep or your state Senator. You know, if you, Absolutely. if you call somebody, email somebody, hit them up on social media, it's pretty likely they're going to take that meeting, you know? And, and yeah. I guess, and I guess, is that, do you, do you agree? And again, this is just, this is my unscientific, you know, observation. Do you, <laughs> do you agree with that assessment? Does that, does that fact of, you know, the, the, the higher accessibility in uh, 2021 factor into your work? It does. And Michael, you could be an academic because just like me, you're like, well, I have these five caveats, but you know, you have to catch your argument. The accessibility, I think, quite frankly, surprises a lot of people. I don't know if it's exclusive to younger generations, but it's something that even having studied politics for a while and and been around uh, people who are involved in public service, I'm always impressed. And I will say, you know, pretty consistently impressed that people who are involved in public service, A, genuinely do care, which I would have that expectation anyway, but they do. Right? They have some sort of passion project. They have some reason they got involved and they're incredibly accessible. As you said, you, you can reach out to them. Even with, we talk about social media now, you don't even have to write them a letter or call their office. You can easily tweet and uh, some Politicians have Snapchat. I don't really know how to use that to communicate, but you could. There, there are different mechanisms for doing that, which I think brings up a couple really important points in terms of our involvement as citizens and our expectations of government because it allows for greater accountability. And we Unfortunately, there's a lot more scrutiny too, but perhaps that's not such a bad thing. And it also makes them more accessible. And so being able to reach them directly an email, tweet, you know, of course you can still write to them, call them, visit them. I find it's encouraging in a lot of ways. I find it to be quite frankly heartwarming because you see they're, they're real people right? and they, and they have aspirations. They, they obviously have an important position, but they, they are human. They're human. And I, I love that, especially for, we talked about the younger generations. I love it for my students. Because I have many students who want to get involved in politics in some way, but they don't know how. And they think of even like a, a city county council person being inaccessible. Just, oh gosh, that person would never want to meet with me. I'm just a student. And they're always amazed. 
But in fact, no, they, they are, they'll, they'll take a meeting. They'll they'll answer your phone call. They will respond to your email. Um, And again, that's one of the benefits of local and state government versus uh, congressional representation. You got a bigger district, bigger constituency, more emails, more phone calls, et cetera. Yeah. I do think certainly our local elected leaders and our state leaders as well are accessible for people. And I honestly believe they're really hungry for that constituency feedback. They want those connections. They got involved in public service for a reason. And hopefully somewhere in that reason involves serving the public, being able to make those connections allows them to do that. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask you on your, about, it has to do with your work on state legislatures at a time in American history where, um, where, Small towns are losing population, and you know, I, I I know it's like rationally I know, and historically I know some of the reasons, you know. And I'm I'm from a very small town in southern Illinois, you know, lived in Indianapolis now for 20 years, but you know, the the farming business got so automated, and then um, obviously with automation of manufacturing, you've got small towns losing population, and a lot of the knowledge worker jobs obviously migrated to the cities, and so I know that in many, many states, it's not unique to Indiana, that these tensions between rural and urban, or I'll say between rural and urban slash suburban, um, start to play out in, in very specific ways. And this is just my, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily good for the country that the rural areas have gone more red and the cities have gone more blue, uh, you know, where to the extent that it used to be more of a mix, you know, but, um, how, how does your work on state legislatures play out in that, kind of an environment where it's happening in many, many U.S. states, not just Indiana? Well, we see with the work in the legislators themselves, oftentimes there is this tension or the conflict, as you're saying, between those in the urban areas and those in the rural areas. And as you mentioned, it is not a uniquely Indiana phenomenon, although I do think in many ways it's exacerbated in our state in part because we have one large urban center. And then we've got a little bit of blue scattered, you know, you might say some Terre Haute, some South Bend, some Bloomington, you know, Fort Wayne, wherever. But, you know, not not as big of cities as you might see in the center of the state with Indianapolis. And then for the most part, the rest of the state is very red and very rural. The parties have have worked in a way where, quite frankly, their policies align to either meet the interests and the demands of what people want in those areas, but they also kind of perpetuate that conflict and that tension. And we we see it play out in state legislators across the country. I, I think part of this could get into questions of districting, which we, we haven't really discussed yet, but, you know, like how the districts are drawn, who's representing people. Uh, but they also get into questions, too, of, what the state is doing to serve the constituents. Yeah. Specifically in Indiana, that conflict comes up because people in the rural areas feel like Indianapolis gets everything. And people in Indianapolis area feel like Indianapolis gives everything. It, it almost reminds me of like a big sister, little sister, or big brother, little brother, whatever it might be, right? You, you, the grass is always greener. You feel like you're not getting your fair share for what you're putting in. Yeah. The reality is that's what what state politics is going to look like. That's what federal government looks like. States feel, you know, they're not doing, they're not getting what they should be. But I think there are ways to alleviate that tension. As I mentioned, the, the districting component, I also think from the party's perspective, making sure they're putting up strong candidates, even in places where they may not be as strong. So Republicans in those urban areas, Democrats in those rural areas. 
having good candidates with good ideas and good policies that are making good competitive elections. And then, of course, if voters still go whichever direction, that was the voters' choice. That's the constituents' call. But, but being able to provide that option, which is quite frankly the underpinnings of democracy, we have to have choice to have a true election. I think that's one one other place where we can start and try to minimizing those conflicts and tensions, which no doubt always exist, but they certainly don't need to be as, as heightened as sometimes they seem to be. It is, it is amazing how so much of this comes back to redistricting and competitive districts. I remember when I first started at the chamber back in uh, 2013 or 2014, and uh, I think you may know my colleague, Mark Fisher, who leads policy for the um, yes. Indy Chamber. And Mark was, he was actually speaking at a, at a, at a community breakfast and said, well, um, we're, he said something to the effect of, we're, we're, li- we're not likely to see large-scale tax reform until we see um, redistricting, you know, and, and you know, um, yeah. election reform to, you know, he's talking about competitive districts. And I was like, man, you're right. It all comes back to that. And I talked to him about it afterward. And I said, I'd never, I'd never heard you say it quite like that. And it led to this discussion about, you know, if, if, if you or I are in a district and we're in a very safe seat and we're much more afraid of being, um, uh, uh, primaried by a candidate who's more orthodox, you know, within our own party than we are in get being defeated by a member of the, of another party because our, because yeah. our district is so lopsided, the kind of, the kind of behaviors and just making you more dug into the party line seems like a really logical outcome. And it's, and so that's just, I, that's a long, that's a long winded thought, but it's basically just saying, yeah, you know, a lot of this, it, a lot of these, the behavior of our elected officials, a lot of it really does come down to the, the competitiveness of that district. Is that right? It's spot on. And there's a lot of research and scholarship out there that ties gerrymandering to the polarization argument. Because to that point, in a primary election, if you are a moderate candidate, but you're facing more extreme, uh, liberal, conservative, whichever party you are, think about who comes out in a primary election. It's going to be the hardcore partisans, most likely probably going to be a little bit more extreme, certainly relative to what you would see in that general election. And so we always talk about this in, in campaigns. I find it fascinating to watch a candidate do that. And I'm sure anyone listening Pay attention to this for next election cycle. It's really fun. But on primary elections, you see all the candidates shift to one side as as best they can, being thoughtful, being strategic, but they shift. And then whichever candidate wins the primary goes on to the general. All of a sudden, they have to do this very thoughtful, very delicate, very challenging, quite frankly, pivot to, to becoming more in the middle without undoing everything they promised to get elected in the primary but still, they're going to be a little bit more extreme than what we might say had we had the old convention model or if we didn't potentially have primaries at all because they had to originally appeal to those hardcore partisans and now they have to appeal to the general public. And so when you're given two more extreme options, the only result, doesn't matter who wins, is ta-da, going to be more extreme versus if you have the more moderate candidates. But We've seen recently in elections, and Murdoch is certainly a great example of this in Indiana elections in the last 10 or so years, but when you do have those those more extreme candidates, overall the pool is going to become more extreme. It's going to become more ideological, and if you have districts where they're already bent one way or another, that just means it's going to be darker in terms of red or a deeper shade of blue. 
if we if we have districting in a way that the elections are truly competitive. So we're thinking, you know, in the given district, you've got about 50-50 Republicans, Democrats. And to be fair, the partisan spread in the United States right now is closer to 30 to 30. So the 40% of Americans are nonpartisan. They don't identify or affiliate with a political party. About 30% do with Republicans and Democrats, and that fluctuates. But if we have a district that's competitive, what you're assuring is that your most competitive candidates are going to get a chance. They're going to get a fair bid. And so, of course, for an incumbent, that probably feels very uncomfortable for obvious reasons. Right? Re-election is job security. But it also provides, we think, most often the best representation right? because it's most accurate to what the constituency might want. And a lot of these terms keep coming up over and over again because they're all mutually reinforcing. Politics does not happen in a box or a vacuum. But certainly that districting component is really important and also thinking in terms of those presumed polarized extremes. Going back to the previous point, I think polarization is a perception, but politics is perception too. So if we think it exists, even if statistically we know it doesn't, if you think it is a duck, it's a duck. Yeah. Right? That, that perception really does matter here. Are you seeing any signs out there that maybe um, there could be enough political will or at least attention paid to the issue of um, of uh, competitive districts, which, uh, you know, let's be honest, takes a, a, a minute to get your brain around, you know, do you, are you seeing, are you seeing any signs that there could be, you know, a shift in the, in the public consciousness to, um, you know, provide the will to do this? And I, I realize, I realize as I ask the question that, um, some, you know, I guess this, this could differ from state to state, you know, even, even city to city, if you're it talking does. about municipal elections, is that right? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And it has to come from the people and the public, as you say. Uh, there are different organizations, grassroots organizations that are dedicated to this. But they have to get that public will. They have to get people on board with the idea. Because, of course, the incumbents won't change the process. And I am I want to be very clear, not blaming them. I, I, I wouldn't want to do that either. But they have zero incentive to change it. In fact, they have more incentive to keep the status quo. And to the point of differentiation, there are different state processes for this. There are different local processes, which I think is the best thing about state government because we can actually compare. We could look to a state like Iowa, where they actually have a nonpartisan committee that creates literally dozens of maps for every given district. And they try to find the drawings. So that's the gerrymandering aspect, right? The districting of the lines in a way that's going to render the most competitive districts. And that's what they end up using. In Congress, we rely on the districting that's done by the members of Congress. It benefits the incumbents and the majority party. That's what we do here in Indiana too. And I understand the complexities. I understand the nuances. It's a obviously a policy people get really passionate about. But I would say if we talk about how it informs you know, citizen engagement, if we talk about it in terms of its influence on uh, polarization, if, if we talk about it in those contexts, just taking out you know, any other perceptions about it, districting plays a large role in the politics that ultimately it yields. And I think we really have to consider what a competitive district would do, what it would bring in terms of the conversation, in terms of the outcome, who gets elected and how they represent, how that might be different than if we have a district at, say, 60-40. Say because you could be a really good candidate, but if your party's in the 40%, it's just not going to happen for you. And likewise, you could be eh, lackluster, but lucky for you, your party has a lot of power, so you'll be fine. 
Yeah. I don't want the lackluster candidate. I want the really good candidate and competitive districts allow us to do that. It's, it's, and again, this is more, I'm, I'm, I, I try to know when I'm out of my depth. And on this, I think this question I am, because as you're seeing, um, state identities, you know, red states and blue states get more locked in over time. And I know, you know, every few years you'll have a state shift and it's not like these are going to be, you know, stagnant forever, but it, you know, I, I've developed an opinion that super majorities just aren't good at, you know, definitely what I've seen at a state or local level, but, and it's just hard to, it's hard to see, you know, um, a super majority giving up power, you know, to, to, to yeah. create, to, 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 uh, create that parity in a redistricting effort. And I, it's hard for me to envision anything really, um, uh, encouraging a super majority to give up power besides just an outpouring of, uh, a public outcry. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and to be clear, I don't fault anyone on that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do that. And both parties, right? Nobody would want to do it. I, I liken it again, back to football and coming from Alabama, roll tide, very good football team. I wouldn't want to yield and say, you know what? Our players are just too good. Let's spread them out. No, we're, we're winning for a reason. I want to keep winning. That is part of the objective. And for a party, it's of course not just winning. That's the objective of the campaign and election process. But then it's being able to implement your policy. So right. no party can truly have an incentive that's, that's going to really motivate change. Because even if, if you're the out party, you just kind of look like a crybaby. Like, oh, well, we want it because we want to have more power. It really has to come from the public, that grassroots organization that says, look, it, it doesn't matter which party, we want it to be competitive, we want it to be fair in this way. And then I should probably just add, since we talk about caveats, right, some people would say this system is fair. The party that wins, right, to the victors go the spoils. Yep. The party that wins does have the ability to draw the lines. That's how the rules are right now. Yep. I'm not contesting the outcome of the game based on the rules. We're questioning, are the rules what we want to see what is quote unquote fair understanding. There's yeah. a lot of subjectivity in that term. I had a, I had a former governor now it's of another state, not Indiana, but I had a conversation with a former governor. This made an impression on me. This is like 10 years ago. I was at a conference and she said, I would rather have, um, I would rather have a fifth, my, my own party, of course, um, in the legislature with a 55, 45 majority, than a super majority of my own party. Cause she said, it's just, e it's easier to get stuff done. And I was like, wow. And it took me a second to get my brain around that. And she said, no, even if it's a super majority of my own party, it's so, it's so much harder to get things done, you know? Yes. And I, and it, again, it took me a second, you know? And so maybe, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe, um, you know, it could, we could, you know, call on support from members of the executive branch of government to, to bring <laughs> about that. You know, I'm sorry. It's just where my brain went. It's, I was, well, was going to say, talk to Governor Holcomb, and, and certainly given what's gone on this state legislative session, I think it reinforces it, but almost too much of a good thing. You see people, I like to use the word defect, and we use that sometimes in the disciplinary language, but if you're in the majority party, you can choose to vote against something that you know your party is going to pass anyway, but you can, you can choose it on principled stance, or you can choose it because that's what your constituents want, or you can choose it because whatever you're going to say is an explanation. And, and you can deviate a little. You've got a little bit of wiggle room. But when you look at whichever party is the out party, and that party pendulum swings back and forth. So at one point and another, every party is going to be the out party. Whichever party is in that out position, they can't afford to lose members on a vote. They can't afford to have people say, 
I just don't really feel it. Uh, my constituents just don't really like it. Uh, just against it in principle, whatever it might be. They really have to stand united. And I, I, I fully understand that argument against the supermajority because too much wiggle room can sometimes be a bad thing. And when you have these diverse coalitions, there's going to be a lot of wiggling going on within policies. Yeah. So um, I only have a couple more questions and thanks so much for being generous with your time. Um, yes, I, fine. you know, I, I do. So I know that what prevents a lot of people from running for office and very, very interesting observation you earlier that, you know, men, men tend to compare themselves to the candidates, the field of candidates and women tend to compare themselves to the, the ideal candidate. Um, that's a very, and, and I know, I know that a limiting factor I'm imagining for men and women is just the nature of the political dialogue itself in the age of mm -hmm. social media. And I, I promised I wouldn't make this a conversation about Trump, you know, that's a whole for another time, you know, and Trump's impact on the, on the, on the dialogue. I'm not personally, not a, not a Trump fan. Um, and, and, um, just the, the nastiness of the, of the dialogue, especially when you can just kind of create an anonymous account on social media and say whatever you want. And I'll also say in asking about this, I have started to not use the word civility as much and I'm looking for different terms and I've become aware as the chamber has um, really embraced more inclusive economic growth and, and being more intentional about business changes and business behaviors to um, address racial inequities and, and things like that, that I know that sometimes the civility conversation can be a little bit loaded because it's really easy for, you know, people in power to kind of, you know, say, well, you all should be more civil. You know, people, historically, people sure. who are not in power don't like being told by the people in power how they should protest <laughs> or take issue. And, and, and yet, and, and so I find myself not really using the term civility, but I also am reminded that this, what, what's perceived as maybe the lack of respectful dialogue is something that is a deterrent for people to get involved. They'll see stuff on social media. They're like, I don't want to deal with that. You, you know what I mean? And yeah, so as you, yeah, what, what do you, what do you find yourself, you know, conversations you find yourself having with, I don't know, media or young people about this phenomenon? Well, for starters, it's understanding that we talked about earlier, the perception is different from the reality. If, if we were going to use the term for, of civility, for example, right, horrible incident, just appalling incident that happened in our state legislature earlier. And perhaps people look at that and say, oh, I don't want to be involved in politics because, see, things like that go on. The reality is, unfortunately, in our society right now, things like that go on everywhere, in every venue, in every industry, in every sector, it gets magnified because these are public servants. They should be serving the public. They're representative of us, our constituents. There's a lot of problems there. But I think when people think, oh, politics is dirty or, oh, it's just it's people trying to manipulate things to get what they want. We, I like to think of public service as just that and as public service. I, Politics sometimes itself, as a word, has a negative connotation, and we shouldn't allow it to take over that kind of perception. But anyone who's serving in, let's just use the example of the state legislature, they're getting paid, what, $35,000 a year with a little bit of per diem. That's in Indiana. The most expensive state legislature, you're making $92,000. So, yes, if you live in New York or California, you're going to make bank. But it's also more competitive. There's other dynamics there. And it's full time, I should add. It's not this three to four months out of year kind of gig. When we talk about these people serving in these roles and the, the questions of civility and getting involved, I, I think it's important for us to remember that 
they are human, and that, that these kind of positions should, quite frankly, attract people because they are public service. Yeah. So if if the word against civility, if that's a really important, it's a public service because people that are choosing to run for office, especially in, let's say, the state legislature or your local city government right, or the school board, if we were going to go there, they're not doing it to make bank. It might be helpful if they have a law firm or a business, you know, they get a little recognition, but believe me, that is hard work. It is long work. And it's quite frankly, inconvenient work, especially with the part-time legislature, just to be gone for three to four months out of the year. You have to have a pretty sweet, flexible gig in order to do that. So I think part of it is reframing it and understanding we're talking about the same animal here, if you will, but it's public service. Yeah. And and, it's and public service. It's, it's like as as voters too. It's almost like I'm just thinking. You know, it's like I want I want my I want my elected I want my elected official to get stuff done. But then if I'm a hardcore partisan, I don't want he him or her to deviate from the party <laughs> line. It's like because like you know right the whether it's civility or just respectful dialogue. It's like like for, forming working relationships with people who have different life experiences and political views. I mean it all what it almost always has a moderating influence on your views. Right. You know, I mean, it's like, I've changed. That's why I'm so boring at cocktail parties. I'll be like, well, on one (laughs) hand, on the other hand, and it's totally, it's, it's true, you know? And, and it's almost like, maybe you're right. I mean, it's almost like we're, we're holding these, you know, elected officials to an impossibly high standard because we want them to get stuff done. But then we also want them to adhere to this for those of us who are more, you know, ideological, this, this, this party line. Um, and just the, and then, you know, we haven't even mentioned the, the, the phenomenon of us having, you know, um, uh, video cameras on all of our phones too, yeah. you know, it's just play, you know, we'll, play, we, you know, we'll play out the, the, the bad behavior up to a, um, a degree that, you know, never seen before, you know? And I, I don't want us to lower our standards, right? But I, I guess there's amount of grace that I think we should consider for public servants. And, and in terms of the representation, there's always this challenge for anyone in, in any position, doesn't even have to be elected office, doesn't even have to be public service. If you are in, in charge of any group, inevitably you will be making decisions on behalf of that group. And it doesn't matter how big, how small, it doesn't matter how serious or how seemingly negligible these, these decisions are. If you're deciding on where your family is going to eat when you go out to dinner, there will probably be some deviations. There'll probably be some people that don't agree, but you have to try to think of making a decision on what people believe is best. Now, it might be based on their principles of what they value to believe is best. Public servants do that. It could be on what they hear from constituents and not always a majority. It could be that small vocal minority. They're, they're still very vocal. So I, I think having an understanding and a grace, that's how I'm going to say it, because I don't want us to lower expectations, but also have to be, I think we have to be realistic about what those expectations are. And some of the challenges that we see in politics, not that we should excuse them, but that we should have a better sense of, of what they are and how they ultimately impact the end goal. Yeah. So a couple quick hit questions. Um, and again, thanks so much for your time. If you could, if you were narrowing down your most kind of the most hopeful signs on the horizon um, in terms of our political system. And I'm speaking broadly, you know, I'm talking national, state and local. And maybe I'm thinking, maybe I, I might ask you about the, the most hopeful signs that are underrated or underreported. Where would you ask people to draw their attention? 
Yes, voter turnout. We had great voter turnout in 2020. And there are probably all sorts of reasons for that. In part, we expanded early voting, although we did it limitedly here in Indiana relative to other states. Um, because of COVID, you know, people had access to the ballot earlier and in different ways. Obviously, it was a contentious election. You know, between Biden and Trump, you had big personalities, a lot of very controversial politics and things coming into play there. But but unless I would hands down emphasize voter turnout. And this is just one metric of civic engagement, but it's an important one because it's really easy to measure. We can yeah. say, did someone vote? Did they not? We can easily keep track of it because we count the ballots relative to other things when we say, you know, are people engaging in um, in civic volunteerism? That's that's much harder to measure. How do you define it? How do I define it? Does one time once a year count or are we talking about different hours per week? Things like that. So overwhelmingly, I would emphasize voter turnout. And that's a national thing. But we also saw, I believe the Indy Star reported, if I'm not mistaken, a record of, since the last 40 years in terms of Hoosier voter turnout. And to give you a sense, we were right around, I believe, 61% in terms of voter turnout for 2020. I remember, this is like, it's one of those <laughs> facts that's like seared into my brain. But I remember when I came to Indianapolis in the 2014 election, we had 26.2% voter turnout. And that was across the state of Indiana. I should say we led the country in the lowest voter turnout. So I guess we actually followed the country. And, and just, I remember thinking that, and yes, we didn't have a gubernatorial election. It was a congressional midterm off year. We also didn't have a Senate election. So you can give all those excuses. Well, that's why people didn't care. That's why people didn't turn out. But nonetheless, voter turnout is an indicative of healthy civic engagement, of an interest, of participation, and and to me, that is by far the most heartwarming thing to see. The change, of course, isn't inevitable. We have to make sure that people are still interested and involved and that they care. But whether they're enthused or enraged, they're coming out and they're voting. And that's an important part of the American process. Yeah. Quick hit question. When, when one of your students approaches you, and this could be, you know, 20-something student or could be an adult student and says, I'm really, hey, I'm, I'm really, uh, Dr. Wilson, I'm really interested in kind of cutting my teeth in local politics and seeing how this you know, this, this works in the real world. What, what advice do you find folks giving, what, what advice do you find yourself giving to people about how to, you know, get more exposure or involvement if they have not been previously? Network, overwhelmingly network. One of my favorite things about Indianapolis specifically is people say this and it's kind of cliche, but it's true. It's a small, big city, or it's like a big, small town. <laughs> However you look at it, there's a small network of people. For students, we always recommend internship experiences. And I'm a very big fan of that as a professor because my students get to meet the people that are doing the jobs they want. They get a sense of what it is they do. Do they like it? I mean, even a bad internship is a great experience because you know, okay, checking that one off the list. That's right. Don't want to be that when I come up. Um, but, but they also get a sense of a network. And what does it take to be that person? I... I personally always love meeting people and, and getting a sense of where, what they did to get where they got, because it, I think that's helpful information and no one has the perfect pathway and you don't just follow exactly what someone did, but you get a better sense of what's out yeah. there. What are the opportunities? And you're so in a city. I, yeah. And in a city like Indianapolis too, it's like, well, like we've said before, most people take that meeting here. They don't even have to know yes. you. It's kind of, yeah. Oh, they will. People are like, who's your hospitality is a very real thing. Yeah. And but it's small enough of a city that there's a network you can easily build. I think it's very accessible for regardless of your age, regardless of when you come to town. 
right? You could do that. And then at the same time, I love that it's large enough for opportunities. Yeah. Um, I, I love getting the opportunity to speak in the media, but I'm not the only political science PhD in town. If, if I can't do it, somebody else can. Uh, we're also able to create our own niches and to yeah. find a way that we can offer something. And because it's a large enough city, there are those opportunities, but it's small enough that you're able to really to work them at your advantage. Absolutely. So yeah. Final, 100%. final, final, final question. Cause I know you got to go and it is, you know, that's something I'm a little bit older than you and your husband, but I think something we all have in common is we found a lot of opportunity here that we didn't necessarily plan for. So, and Absolutely. this, this, sh- this, this show is not a booster show, but you know, it is the backdrop is, you know, <laughs> meeting leaders within Indianapolis. So is there anything else about Indianapolis that stands out as you think about it as a city or as you think about, you know, your ambitions for the city in the future? I, I love the flexibility and the accessibility. Um, for me, like when we look at the political scene and we look at higher education, it's big enough to give you those opportunities. It's, it's great for students. It's quite, quite frankly, great for faculty members. It, there are enough opportunities that we can really take advantage of them, but it's not overwhelming. And it's, and it's not going to be a place where no, that already exists in this sort of way. The infrastructure is so large, it's impossible to untangle. I get quite frankly and honestly nervous when I drive to Chicago because it's very complicated. Even the roads, quite frankly, are complicated. And I feel like Indianapolis affords that kind of growth and progress for, for individuals, but also for industries. There's a lot, there's a lot that we can take advantage of and there's a lot that we can use in our own way. Um, And I will say as an academic, it's been amazing for me. I, I still get to network with other academics. I get this opportunity to speak through the media. I get the opportunity to share important things that are going on in the research and the literature. And if I lived in a small college town, right, that that was not the center of the media market, I'd never get that opportunity. And I, also with students, right, getting internships, really easy. We live seven minutes away from the state capitol. Right? We are right where politics happens. And that's true for IUPUI. That's true for Marion. That's true for Butler as well. There's a a whole contingency of higher education that's just here. Um, I I think there's a lot of opportunity and progress. And as you said, that's one of the things that really attracted my husband and myself to the city of Minneapolis. I I see for us individually, a lot of potential for growth, but I would also say that just generally speaking, specifically for higher education um, and, and politics, there's a lot here we can take advantage of. Well, Dr. Wilson, it's, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's given me a much needed shot of energy, um, in a, in a week when I've had some, had some, uh, 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 small P political, uh, 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 frustration. So it's, it's really, it's really great to kind of think about the bigger picture and then also look for the signs of hope, you know, in a time when a lot of times the, the national politics, uh, dominates the, the, the discussion. So yeah, I'd encourage anybody listening, check out, uh, the work of Dr. M- uh, Laura Merrifield Wilson here at the university of Indianapolis. Uh, just thank you so much for your time. I sure appreciate it. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael, for having me on the show. Good, thanks. Have a great night. I will. You too. Take care. Bye.